Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the January 2024 Opera with Opera News magazine, and we'll begin with Opera in the USA, Dallas. Upon hearing that Jean-Dominique Bobby's memoir The Diving Bell and the Butterfly has been turned into an opera, one's first inclination might be to wonder how it could possibly work. But it had already been adapted into a well-received feature film in 2007, proving that an uncomfortable story about locked-in syndrome possessed dramatic potential. The composer Joby Talbot and librettist Jean Shear have now fashioned an operatic version which had its premiere at Dallas Opera. At its third of four performances at the Windspear Opera House, November 8th, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly showed itself to be a major new opera, by turns harrowing, moving, inspirational, and even at times wryly funny, in keeping with the man at the center of its true story. The premise is familiar to many, due to the film and hugely successful book on which it is based. In 1995, Bobby, at 43, was riding high as editor of Francis L. Magazine, with a comfortable life, a book contract for a novel, and two adoring children, though his wife had recently left him upon discovering that he was having an affair. When he suffered a stroke, after three weeks in a coma, he emerged with locked-in syndrome, aware of everything around him yet unable to do anything but blink his eyes. Before long, one of his eyes had to be surgically closed due to risk of infection. An exceedingly patient speech therapist taught him to spell out words by blinks alone, which led to his being able to communicate and eventually to dictate painstakingly his memoir, Blink by Blink. He died at 44, two days after the book was published. Talbot is a highly eclectic composer who spent nine years as a keyboardist and arranger for the pop band The Divine Comedy and has written film and television scores, ballets, and other concert works. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is his second collaboration with Jane Shear, and his second work to be premiered at Dallas Opera. The first was Everest in 2015. Shear has provided him with an eloquent, phantasmagoric libretto that continually brings Bobby out of his hospital bed and into his own memories, dreams, and inner space voyages. He has made the wise choice of telling Bobby's story, not only from Bobby's perspective, but also from that of those closest to him, showing the effect his condition had on others. Talbot's eclectic yet highly disciplined score sensitively reacts to the prismatic, mercurial structure of Shearer's libretto. His trademark use of percussion is present throughout, as is an impressionistic Debussyan idiom. The dark, minimalist tones depicting Bobby's imprisoned self give way to the ravishing exuberance that accompanies his cherished memories and fantasies of escape. Flashbacks to times he spent with his wife, and later his girlfriend, are tinged with a jazzy sensuality. Talbot deftly synthesizes these disparate elements into a coherent musical tapestry. 
It must be said, however, that this work shares a drawback with many contemporary operas. It is the music in the orchestra that is most effective and memorable. The vocal writing, somewhat less so. The conductor Emmanuel Villon was alive to every nuance of the complex score and never allowed the vigorous 51-piece orchestra to overpower the singers. Leonard Folia's inspired direction of this difficult material, he also directed Everest, was immensely aided by his creative team, particularly the lighting design of Russell H. Champa and the set and projection design of Elaine J. McCarthy. The basic unit set suggested a huge room made up of shattered mirrors on every surface, reflecting the shattered state of Bobby's world. Abstract and semi-realistic projections enhanced the unmoored feeling and were very much an organic element in the staging, rather than a distracting one. They helped tell the story, rather than drawing attention to themselves. Particularly apt was the blink effect in the stage lighting that represented Bobby's yes and no answers. David Woolard's costumes were admirably unshowy in this tale of real people going through real emotional trauma. The baritone Lucas Meekham gave an heroic performance as Bobby that required him to be on stage at all times. His voice may not have the most distinctive timbre, but he wields it like a master, making effective use of dynamics from agonized, howling phrases to seductive pianissimos and diminuendos. Sasha Cook brought her ripe mezzo and warmly empathetic acting to the role of Bobby's estranged but loving wife, Sylvie. Richard Croft played Bobby's imaginary friend and confidant, who appears to him in the form of Abbe Faria from The Count of Monte Cristo, a novel that Bobby was contracted to revise and adapt in his own style just before his stroke. Croft, always an ingratiating stage presence, brought his reliably lucid diction to this character, who is key to helping us understand Bobby's struggle. Andriana Chuchman buried her natural glamour under the dowdy clothes and wig of the encouraging speech therapist Sandrine. But she was permitted to let that glamour briefly shine, along with her bright, soaring soprano, in a dream sequence where she appears as the Count of Monte Cristo's fiance Mercedes. Kevin Burdett was touching as Bobby's father, and Jocelyn Hansen made such a strong impression in her short scene as the office assistant who becomes Bobby's girlfriend that she made one wish she had more stage time. Smaller roles were well taken by Andrew Bidlack, Martin Luther Clark, and Deanna Brywick and Austin Horwath and Ava Jafari projected their spoken lines believably as Bobby's children. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly was composed before the COVID pandemic struck, but that worldwide catastrophe gives even more meaning and contemporary relevance to this story of how our bodies can betray us, and how death can be lurking at every turn. Make no mistake, however, This opera is not a downer. It encourages us to make the most of the reversals in our lives, to savor our living moments, and to cherish those we trust to be standing by. By Eric Myers Denver 
How odd to see a production of Don Giovanni that offered nothing particularly odd. No leather jackets, no laundromats, no gimmicky updating. Just Mozart. Remember him? Opera Colorado and the director David Lefkovich certainly did when they opened the season in Denver's Ellie Calkins Opera House November 7th with a sumptuous traditional staging that kept the focus where it should be on the story and the music. Placed before Lawrence Schaefer's huge unit set borrowed from New Orleans Opera, the production flowed with unbroken pacing that was never rushed despite the shenanigans that sent cast members scurrying about endlessly. The opera's chaotic high point occurs with a masquerade, usually a mess in lesser hands, but Lefkovich handled it with masterful control. Garbed in Howard's V. Kaplan's colorful period costumes, the principals seem to relish the silliness as much as their opportunities to pause and deliver some exquisite Mozart. Just as De Ponte's libretto maintained a gentle balance between light comedy and riveting drama, the solid cast shifted effortlessly between committed acting and superb singing. Dominating every onstage moment was Bruno Tadilla's Giovanni. He was seemingly born to play this arrogant ladies' man. His burnished baritone carried easily through the cavernous opera house while his every transparent flirtation elicited the same giggles from the audience as it did from his onstage targets. Tall and graceful, he commanded the stage. Among his many vocal highlights were the champagne aria, sung at properly breakneck speed, and a sweet serenade, with nice mandolin playing from Alex Commodore. The leporello, Joshua Bloom, proved an ideal casting choice. Youthful in appearance, he boasted a resonant bass that was matched by a delicious comic sense that made his catalog aria a delight. The chemistry between the two male leads was palpable. Thanks to Lefkovich's deft direction, their silly costume switcheroo bit actually worked, sort of. The lead female roles proved a source of continual pleasure. Ellie Den, as Dona Elvira, looked elegant in a series of sumptuous gowns, matched by a soprano of endless warmth and spot-on clarity. She brought plenty of anger to me, Trotty, while navigating nimbly through those cruel coloratura passages. Her dealings with Giovanni showed her strength against his power, adding much-needed tension to the drama. Danielle Paston's Dona Anna, was not as strong a figure, but her need for revenge was clearly expressed. She delivered a nicely shaded Orsaiki Lonore, though it could have used a touch more rage. Kudos to the lighting designer, Joe Boomer, who bathed Paston in stark white light, heightening the intensity as she recounted the attempted rape. The Zerlina of Kirby Byer revealed a lovely expressive soprano, and her understated Bati Bati was charming. She looked properly innocent, making an easy mark for Giovanni in La Cidara La Mano, although Lefkovich could have made more of the physical give and take in this revealing scene. Supporting roles were given depth and sympathy, notably John Bellamer's Donatavio, 
and Turner Statton's Masetto, roles often lacking in directorial detail. There was also nice work from Kevin Thompson as the commendatory, who spent a cruel amount of time motionless on a huge horse statue. He also sang with authority. In the pit, the music director Ari Pelto opened the evening with a brisk overture, then settled in with a sympathetic accompaniment, leading a superb orchestra that never overpowered the singers. Too bad the minuet at Giovanni's party was heard from the pit rather than offstage. By Mark Schulgold. Houston. The roles that women played in America's Civil War doctor, medic, nurse, even soldier and spy, have been chronicled in multiple books. Now there's a new, fact-inspired opera about woman-engineered espionage. The opera is Intelligence, by the composer Jake Heggie and librettist Jean Shear, and it is Houston Grand Opera's 75th premiere, the fourth by Heggie. Like the composer's Dead Man Walking, 2000, which launched the Metropolitan Opera's current season. Intelligence, seen on October 22nd in Wortham Theater Center's Brown Theater, inaugurated the HGO season. The work, a company commission that is being recorded for future release on Apple Music Classical, has been eight years in the making. It was set to bow in 2021, but was postponed by the pandemic. The setting of Heggie's 10th full-length opera is 1855, as the Confederate capital city of Richmond, Virginia, is surrounded by soon-to-be-victorious Union forces. Rich and white, Elizabeth Van Loo is an abolitionist who created a spy ring for sneaking military intelligence, rebel strategies and troop movements, to the Yankee forces. Her chief agent is Mary Jane Bowser, a slave in her household who has been taught to read and write and is sent to work undercover in the Confederate White House, where she can access secret documents. The story has personal as well as historical dimensions and resonances. Mary Jane longs to know her history and place in the world. Her husband and fellow spy Wilson adores her, and the White House butler Henry falls in love with her. In addition, Elizabeth's pro-Confederacy sister-in-law Callie is in love with Travis, a brutal member of the Home Guard who wants to get the goods on Elizabeth and Mary Jane. Under John Torres's lambent lighting, Mimi Lean's simple set consisted of a two-story framework house, some pieces of furniture, a big oak tree, and lots of panels serving as screens for Wendell Carey Harrington's projections of a slave ship, plantation cabins, and so forth. Carlos J. Soto provided subdued period dresses, while Claire Hummel created colorful African tribal-style costumes for a jubilant dance when Mary Jane discovers the family history that Elizabeth kept hidden for years. That arresting moment was provided by the choreographer and first-time opera director Joel Willa Josolar and eight dancers from the Brooklyn-based Urban Bush Women Company, which the 2021 MacArthur Foundation grant winner Zolar founded in 1984. The dancers, 
who represented spirits of the past and present, sometimes interacted with the singers and were on stage almost all the time, providing sinuous and swooping movement that mirrored and reinforced what was happening or being discussed. Crisply and fluently conducted by Kwame Ryan in his HGO debut, Heggie's score anachronistically but evocatively toyed with blues and gospel, accompanied the African-style dance with pounding percussion, and provided the singers with mostly supple and often heights-reaching vocal lines. Janai Brueger made a luminous HGO debut with her gleaming soprano as Mary Jane, and Jamie Barton's Elizabeth was potently sung and dotted with some sassy humor. Her fellow mezzo-soprano Janai Bridges brought dignity and a strong voice to Lucinda, a spirit that only her daughter Mary Jane can see or hear, and the soprano Caitlin Lynch sang and acted touchingly as Callie. The baritone Michael Mays was a stentorian Travis. The bass baritone Nicholas Newton was a mellow-toned and sympathetic Henry, and Joshua Blue fielded a keen tenor as Wilson. Seen on October 29th in Brown Theater, HGO's fifth staging of Falstaff featured a startling bonus. Was lots of time needed for set changes, or did somebody think Verdi's final masterpiece needed some punching up? Whatever the case, between the scenes of the first two acts, the orchestra played the overtures of La Battaglia di Legnano and Un Giorno di Regno, and the autumn portion of the ballet in Le Vespre Sicilienne. The Los Angeles opera production was otherwise jolt-free. Lit by Michael James Clark, the sets and costumes by Adrian Linford boasted a handsome Elizabethan look and feel. Paula Suozzi's lavishly detailed and occasionally naughty staging, when wooing Alice Ford, Falstaff flashed a jeweled codpiece, for example, brimmed with humor and vitality and HGO's artistic and music director Patrick Summers conducted with vigor and finesse, both in the opera and during the early Verdi Pops concert. Seven of the ten young singers were current or former members of HGO's training program, recently named the Butler Studio. Reginald Smith Jr. lent the title role of frisky physicality and a fat, throatily booming baritone but provided little verbal or coloristic variety. Blake Denson's big, lean, somewhat grainy baritone drove a potent Ford. Jack Swanson sang Fenton's sweet love songs with ardor and delicacy. Amusing fussiness and a pungent tenor distinguished Martin Bakari's Dr. Caius and Michael McDermott and Daniel Noyola sang sturdily as Bardolph and Pistol. The soprano, Nicole Heaston, made a feisty and vocally lustrous Alice Ford, and Andrea Carroll's charming Nanetta scored with lively acting and a soprano both crystalline and strong. Emily Treagle's warm mezzo enhanced her vivacious Meg Page, 
and Jennifer Johnson Cano's mezzo, while lacking contralto plumminess and depth, produced the necessary chest register for Mistress Quickly's iconic Reverences by William Albright. Hudson The 19th century venue Hudson Hall, in one of upstate New York's gentrified riverports, played host to a stimulating, if sometimes conceptually opaque, Rotolinda, October 29th. This last of six performances in the director R.B. Schlather's Victorian melodrama-flavored enactment, which Schlather co-produced with Hudson Hall, betokened a projected series of Handel works in the intimate venue. Handel's 1725 opera had its first American performance in 1931, less than 100 kilometers away, at Smith College in Massachusetts, starring Mabel Garrison. Not as well known in the U.S. as Giulio Cesare, or Cerse, it gained currency in the Met's 2004 Stephen Wadsworth production, the only complete success among the company's handle stagings thus far. Rinaldo, Samson, Agrippina, two goes at Giulio Cesare. Though it was salutary to hear music that the Met had cut, such as Anulfo's Act One Sono e Colpi, and the lead's final duet, Doni Crudel Martyr, much of the recitative was trimmed, and full da capo aria structures were sacrificed. Hard to take when the remainder was an A-B pairing with no repeat. But Schlather's clever blocking, and the lively timing of the early music band Ruckus, did what they could to render things seamless. The dozen-member Ruckus played with surging Slancio, dispensing lyric balm and percussive verve as needed. Handel's score calls for lute. In this reduced orchestration, Paul Holmes Morton's expert, if sometimes rhythmically dominant guitar and theorbo, may well have brought along those new to Handel's idiom. The piece played well in a single set, a handsome if spare room, beautifully lit throughout, with telling use of shadows, by Masha Simring. Schlather's Alden-trained eye gave us graffiti instead of a tomb inscription, fine, and, less welcome, much smeared blood on walls, floors, and costumes. Also, copious telescoped enemy, signally at the opera's putative happy ending. But it worked on its own terms. Mattia Emelson's hair and makeup were first-rate, the male singers, slim and glamorous, and in line with Schlather's 2015 Orlando, eventually in semi-deshabille, were better served costume-wise than the women. Using a dining table to focus dynastic and marital struggles will have surprised only those unversed in European reggae stagings of the last decade, but worked well here as Rodolinda relates at heart a very domestic narrative. The persona in reggae, per se, mostly clarified motivations and emotive states, though the direction for Eduige, Teresa Buchholz, musically irreproachable, seemed underexamined, and that for the work's most complex character, 
Grimoaldo, unduly Grand Guignol. Karim Suleiman gleefully tore a passion to tatters and decorated his music very skillfully. His reedy tenor appealed most at soft dynamics, and like Brennan Hall's sympathetic but not very strong-voiced Unulfo, lacked the long breath line sometimes implicit in the writing. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.